And in today's tale, we follow a detective on the trail of an absconding solicitor. And his journey pretty much takes him across to the other side of the world. It has certain parallels to Around the World in 80 Days. In today's story, we look at the case of the absconding solicitor. Scotland Yard detective Francis Carlin and his reminiscences that we turn to today's story. I had not long been promoted to the rank of detective sergeant at Scotland Yard where I was detailed to take up the case. A certain lawyer in a fairly large town in the Midlands had absconded with a very considerable sum of money belonging to two of his clients. These clients were a brother and sister for whom the money had been left in a trust in the hands of the solicitor. On reaching 21 years of age, the young people applied for their money and about a week later, the solicitor had fled for there was not a single penny left out of the trust. The matter was reported to the Director of Public Prosecutions and Mr F.J. Sims, then an Assistant Director, in the Public Prosecutions Department, and he went to town and questioning, and he amassed sufficient evidence to justify a warrant being issued, and the warrant was handed over to the local police to execute. But the solicitor had many friends in many places, and it was, no doubt, through one or more of them that he got wind of his imminent arrest. At all events, he slipped through the hands of the local police and vanished into the blue. On learning of this, the public prosecutor telephoned to Scotland Yard to send a good man on the case immediately, and I was the good man detailed, and I proceeded to the town in question. I was well aware, of course, that I would probably be up against a number of people who would more than likely try to throw dust in my eyes if they knew I was a Scotland Yard detective, so I simply did not tell them. I had a small case with me, which looked as though I'd been carrying some kind of samples, and I let it be thought by the people whom I came into contact with that I was a commercial traveller. Tacitly playing this role made it possible me to be around tapping on doors and likely sources of information as to where T, I am given a false initial here for reasons I shall explain later on, had fled to. Within 24 hours, I established the fact that he had gone to London, but I wanted something more definite before I left that town. Then in conversation, in a little shop on a back street where, in making a purchase of tobacco, I had brought the conversation round to the affair of the solicitor. I gleaned from a careless remark dropped by a man in the shop that T might be staying 
in a certain West End hotel. I did not want to risk sending a telegram, so I caught the first train back to town and went straight to the hotel. Five minutes inquiries at the reception and the cashier's office showed me that while my man had certainly stayed there for the previous night, he had left the hotel about two o'clock on the day of my arrival. For, of course, I was able to give an accurate description of him to the hotel employees. I made inquiries amongst the porters to find out if possible whether any of them had taken T's luggage to a train. And here I found that my wanted solicitor had been pretty cute for he'd carried his one bag himself out of the hotel and thus there was no trace of the train he'd left by. But now I did have one of those little sums which Detective had set himself on and answered on hundreds of occasions when he finds himself in a cul-de-sac when tracking a man. I put two and two together, and my data was the time of tea leaving the hotel and the most likely place for him to go. Two o'clock suggested it was a 2.20 express to Folkestone, en route to Boulogne. What more probable than he should be making for the continent? Thus, I arrived at a four, which I put before my chiefs at the yard, and the next day found me on the 11am Continental Boat Express. My arrival at Belong, I first went to see our man there. It may not be generally known that Scotland Yard has officers in various continental ports permanently, and we're constantly on the lookout for wanted people and suspects passing to and from England. We went to the Belong Police together, and there I made inquiries about a person in answering to the description of T. I do not know if all my readers are aware that in continental countries all hotels are obliged to furnish a regular return to the police of the names and places of origin of all their visitors. It is a system which, as this country found in the war, is of immense assistance to the CID. In the present instance, I certainly found it so, but it was not exactly a simple matter to trace the desired tea and the hotel lists that were put to my disposal. I went through them carefully and I made a note of every person of English origin. The name of tea was not there, but, I argued to myself, it's most unlikely that he would register in his own name. The question is, which of this long list is the one he's used. I eliminated all the improbables, many of them being names of well-known persons. Taking the remainder, I scrutinised them one by one. I came to a name beginning with a W, and I stopped there. For one of the things that's become familiar to me was the classifying of names and districts. You know how certain names are particular with certain districts? As an example of what I mean, you'll find crowds of Robsons in the Tyneside towns, Suffolk has its Dunnets, Wales its Morgans, and Somerset its Chigdies. Now, this name, which began with a W, was peculiar. I knew to the Midlands district, which tea came from, 
and I seized upon it immediately as an indication worth following up. I went to the hotel whose list it was on and inquired of the staff if there had been a man answering the description. They said yes, they had, but he had left two days previously. This was setback number two, but patience is not only a virtue, but a necessity with a detective. And I went next to examine the sailing lists at the various shipping offices in Belong, and there are quite a number of bookings for America. An exhaustive search yielded up the name of W in the books of one company which had booked a passage for him on the SS Shidam, which had already sailed. Again, I worked on my description of T, who was travelling as W, and once more it tallied. I should have mentioned that I had a photograph of T, also which, at the end of my questioning each individual, I produced with several others and asked them to pick out that of the person who had been at the hotel or the shipping office. Let me first interpolate that when photographs of wanted people are put out before someone for identification, there must be by regulation at least eight photographs of different people. This is of course to ensure that According to the fundamental principles of British justice, the case against the subject is built up fairly and without prejudice. Personally, I rarely use less than 12 photos on occasions. I have heard judges over and over again in court ask a police witness how many photos were shown for identification purposes. And on a witness answering, six, my lord, there will be a significant pursing of the lips, which would lead to a comment when the judge came to sum up. There was no more to be done in Boulogne. I was convinced that my man was, at that moment, somewhere on the Atlantic Ocean, and I returned to London and to Scotland Yard, where I laid all the evidence I had before my chiefs and told them I was certain tea was en route for New York. After conferring with various officials who were responsible for instituting extradition proceedings, they sent off a cable on the strength of my information to Pinkertons, the agents of the British government in New York, to detain and hold a man who was arriving on the SS Shedam and who answered to such and such a description. It was almost a week later we received a cable from New York to this effect. Man detained as instructed and held at the tomb's prison. Denies identity. End. I do not mind telling you now that there was a certain fluttering in the dovecoats of Whitehall when that cable was received. For the police of this country work much more cautiously with regard to arrests or detention than any other in the world. It is regarded here as a very serious affair to arrest the wrong person. And this is the reason why, as I have observed once or twice, and you have no doubt noted, the Criminal Investigation Department officers must always have convincing evidence to lay before the authorities before they can get a warrant for a person's arrest. So, as I say, 
There was no little trepidation on the part of those responsible for ordering this detention in New York. Frankly, I did not share those fears. My reason, and that other part of me, which I've always called my sixth sense, told me we had got the man we wanted. Two days later came another cable. Man admits identity. Wire further instructions. A decision was taken and a reply was dispatched. Sending responsible officer first available boat with papers and to take over man detained. And so, I was detailed to go to New York. I crossed the Atlantic with no incident on the voyage to report and on my arrival on the other side, I went off to the British agents. They told me the details of the arrest of the man and then I went to the Tombs prison where he was being held. There, I first clapped my eyes on the individual whom I'd chased from the town in the Midlands to London and then to Boulogne and eventually now to New York without once having sighted him. His appearance, allowing for the change due to his incarceration, was in keeping with his late profession. He was a stoutish man with iron-grey hair, obviously well-educated and well-bred, with an air about him which bespoke the well-to-do professional man. And as soon as I'd told him who I was, he gave me a full admission of everything. I'm coming back with you, Sergeant Carlin, he said pleasantly. I shall give you no fuss or bother. I was leading a perfectly straight life and I had a successful practice until I was attracted by the prospectuses of Whitaker Wright. They seemed to promise me that if I went in for some speculation on stocks and shares, I would quickly amass sufficient to retire on. I have a rising family too and I was ambitious for them. I put every penny of my own into the get-rich-quick schemes of Whitaker Wright, and then I started to put my clients' money in as well. I was a fool, and I was fooled like thousands of others who'd been duped by Wright. Everything went wrong, and this is the result, he concluded. And then he told me that by one of those remarkable coincidences which sound like fiction, in the same passage in the tomb's prison, a few cells away, and within ten yards, there lay the very man whose financial schemes had lured him into stealing his client's money. For Whitaker Wright, millionaire, landed proprietor, and owner of a wonderful mansion, was in a like plight to tea. Although his waiting extradition had nothing whatever to do with my man's case, except insofar as what T had told me, the two, in fact, had never met. The extradition proceedings did not take long in this case. I had armed myself with the necessary documents before leaving England. For the information of my readers, let me say that the procedure in such cases is the magistrate of the district in which the crime was committed grants a warrant for the person's arrest. He also gives a certified copy of the information on which the warrant is based. The usual person applying for the warrant is, of course, the public prosecutor, but should it be a private individual or a firm, the latter has to sign a form of indemnification 
by which he assumes the responsibility for the arrest being executed. That form, when used, is also amongst the extradition documents. These papers are sent to the Home Office, where the officials countersign them and pass them on to the Foreign Office. There, they are again countersigned and passed on to the Embassy of the country to which the wanted person has fled. After the Embassy officials have passed the documents and countersigned them, they return via the Foreign and Home Offices to Scotland Yard or the particular police concerned. And in this case, the detective goes abroad to fetch back the fugitive. I was thus enabled, with no little or delay, to take tea from the Tombs prison on board a liner for England. The more I saw of tea, the more I decided in my own mind that in spite of his embezzlements, I had a certain regard for him. In fact, it got to a stage where I felt so far as his attitude was concerned to me, I could trust him. He was particularly worried about some jewellery and money, particularly the former, which had been taken from him when he was lodged in the tombs prison, and he asked me if I could do anything about getting them back. I made some inquiries and found there was a matter of some £50 that had been taken from him under the regulations when he'd been put in the tombs prison. There was also a gold watch and a chain, a ring and one or two other articles. I had no small difficulty in getting the valuables for him, but I succeeded in doing so, and by the time we were ready for the boat, T expressed his gratitude to me. I booked a double cabin on the SS Cedric, and at length I got on board with T. Now, I had undertaken not to handcuff him, or to give any outward sign of his being in custody, on his having said it to me again. You may depend on me to go back quietly with you. I know I shall have to face the trouble, and I intend to. I shall play a game with you, Sergeant Carlin, if you will waive strictness with me. It was my own responsibility, of course, to get T back to stand his trial, and I exercised my discretion in the matter, not for the last time. He and I shared a cabin between us, and the only ban I put on his complete liberty on board the ship was to stipulate he must not leave the cabin on any pretext whatever without my permission. Our relationship was perfectly friendly, and we talked on various subjects as though we'd been a couple of travelling companions instead of a police officer in his charge. T, as I said, was an educated, sensible man, and he realised I was merely doing my duty, and that, in fact, in doing it, I was making matters as pleasant for him as possible. I looked upon him as an individual who had been unfortunate enough to fall into his present position. A famous opera company was on board, returning to England after a tour of the United States. On the first night out, they organised a concert in aid of some sailors' charity fund, and they were looking for outside talent and a chairman. At tea time in a saloon, one of them came up to me and asked, could I contribute a number? And he added, would this gentleman take the chair, turning to tea? You see, I had made it my business to ensure that not a soul on board except the captain and the chief steward knew 
the exact position in regards to T and myself. And I had let it be given out that he was my uncle. T looked in an embarrassed manner. And when the member of the opera company put the question, I answered for him. Of course he will. I'll sing a song if you like. And my uncle will act as chairman. And what an excellent chairman my prisoner made. He was, of course, accustomed to preside over various kind of meetings in his profession as solicitor. He made a most telling speech on behalf of the charity, and then he went on to announce the turns and to give the audience an interest in each. As I came to the platform in the saloon to sing my small effort, he announced me, and I could not help smiling inwardly at the unique, almost ironic position of the affairs. I wondered what effect would have been on the members of the opera company and the rest of the passengers had I announced instead of singing. The chairman tonight, ladies and gentlemen, is a prisoner of the law. He's gone back to England to be tried and in all probability to receive a long term of imprisonment. And I am a Scotland Yard detective who has him in custody. But I sang instead. Tea became popular with her fellow passengers after the concert and he was in constantly in demand to organise deck games and arrange tournaments. On each occasion, he asked me quietly and inquired if I would mind and I told him, certainly not. For every way, he played cricket with me and I had never had the slightest cause to regret making the voyage, his last open-air experience for several years, as congenial as possible. So that in the manner we reached Queenstown, but there our secret was revealed, for the ubiquitous and inevitable newspaper reporters had got wind of the identity of one of the ship's passengers, and they swarmed aboard. I was astounded to learn that the rumour had gone out in England, and the conducting of tea from the tombs prison and on board had been a sensational affair. He had been very violent on the quay at New York. He had tried to get away from me and had attempted to bribe a steward with $500 to make good his escape across the gangway. He had eventually to be hit over the head with a revolver, so I was informed. Both at Queenstown and Liverpool, when we arrived, I gave a strong and prompt denials to the rumours and I said briefly that on the contrary, T had behaved in the most exemplary fashion. When we got to the quay in Liverpool and were waiting to pass through customs, we were surrounded by a curious crowd to whom T true position had leaked out. There, T himself gave a denial to the story of the attempted escape and said he had been treated by me with the uttermost courtesy all the time in my custody. His appearance... He was in perfect health and the fact that he was smoking a large Havana cigar told most eloquently that the stories of him having been handcuffed in his cabin were fake. With Inspector Bell of the Liverpool CID, I took tea to Dale Street and he was put inside there while I made arrangements to catch a train to town where I was finally taking him. I had planned to get the first train next morning but a report reached me in a roundabout manner there was a possibility of a party of people who were friends with 
and sympathisers with tea meeting that particular train at our destination. And as I did not want a demonstration, and it turned over in my mind the possibility of some enthusiastic trying to help tea to escape, I determined to travel immediately. So I got him out of Dale Street and caught the earliest train. We got to our destination very late at night and I had no idea where the police station was and had to ask the prisoner. It's two miles from the station, he said. And I'm afraid it's too late to get a conveyance. So we set off to walk. But now that T was on his home soil and knowing the feelings of great many of the people in that town, I told him I would have to handcuff him, which I did. On and on we walked, and it seemed to me, going along the unknown roads in the dark, we were never going to reach the police station. At length, when we'd gone what struck me as already over two miles, I turned to my prisoner and said, We seem to be going a long way. Are you certain you know this road? Is it right? I noticed a strange emotional note in his voice as he answered me. I should think I know the road. This is the street where I live. And a few yards further on, he suddenly stopped and knelt down in the roadway and remained still. As he was handcuffed to my wrist, the sudden pull had caused a moment's apprehension that he was going to try and get away. But I looked down at him on his knees in the middle of the road and I saw what was happening. His eyes were raised to a house immediately opposite. In the bedroom window on the first floor of the large villa, a red shaded light could be seen. T's lips were slightly parted and they moved, but without any audible words coming from them. His hands were joined. He was praying silently, for that was his own dwelling and I could well understand his thoughts penetrating into the home which he was destined not to see again for several years. It is not my intention to tell you what my own feelings were at that moment, but my understanding and sympathy were perhaps a little more acute on account of receiving a telegram on arriving in England announcing the birth of my youngest daughter. I can only say that I got tea to the police station and formally handed him over the charge of the officer there. Then I appeared at the hearing before the magistrates Bail was applied for by the solicitor for tea, but acting on instructions, I opposed. It's not to be wondered that the bail was refused in view of the obvious local feeling and the possibility of another long chase for tea. At the Assizes, he was sentenced to five years penal servitude. You may remark, it seems a stiffish sentence. Bear in mind, though, that the law very likely meets out severe punishment to those who are in a position of trust and responsibility and abuse it. The law is in fact, as a rule, more severe upon lawyers than on people in other walks of life. And in the years I'm speaking of, sentences generally were more stiff than they are today. Whether we have progressed or not is not a matter which I wish to debate in these chapters. Well, that's it for another episode of the Historical Crimes and Criminals podcast. I hope you enjoyed that one. And 
Till the next episode, bye-bye.